Good morning. It's, uh, it's, it has been nice worshiping with you, and golly, it's nice being up here uh, today. Uh, Jill said that I'm from Indiana. Uh, do you know what the number two religion is in Indiana? No, no, it's, it's not basketball. It's uh, Christianity. <laughs> yes, yesterday I got a call. Uh, yesterday morning I got a call. It was my cousin. She said, uh, Kenny, she's one of the probably the three people left who call me Kenny. She said, we just talked to mom. And I said, sure. So my Aunt Louisa, who's 90 years old, gets on the phone. And first thing she says uh, is she says, have you been watching basketball? And I've been doing it a little. But, uh, and then she told me all the basketball that she has been watching. Uh, you know, since I started worshiping here last summer, a number of my friends have asked if uh, I'm involved in Green Tree's Stephen ministry. And I tell them, yes, I am. And my main role is to go to their parties. <laughs> now, I've done some continuing education for the Stephen ministers. So it's not just parties, but uh, I will have to say that your Stephen ministers, uh, your group of Stephen ministers is one of the wildest groups of Stephen ministers that I know of. Now, seriously, uh, along with all the fun, your Stephen ministers are involved in some pretty remarkable ministry, which has made a big difference in people's lives around here. Uh, and I know uh, Green Tree is starting a new class uh, this fall, and that taste of uh, Stephen ministry on April 9. Uh, and that, this, that taste of Stephen ministry is probably not going to be a wild party, but the food will be great. Now, over the years, Green Tree has sent a number of people to Stephen Series Leaders training courses that are run by our staff at Stephen Ministries. Uh, Stephen leaders are the ones who teach and lead Stephen ministry in the congregation. And I'd like the four Stephen leaders who are leading Green Tree's Stephen ministry to stand up and remain standing, if you would. Uh, they are uh, Karen Lovell, who started the program here at Green Tree, <coughs> Excuse me. Susan Ward, Jill Moeller, and Karen Reichert. And there might also be some other people who have been to a Stephen Series Leaders training course uh, uh, over the years. And if there are any of you here, would you all please stand up and remain standing? All right. Wow. And now these Stephen leaders have trained a good number of Green Tree members to be Stephen ministers. And you know, Stephen ministers are the ones who do the one-to-one -one care. Would those of you who have been trained over the years as a Stephen minister at Green Tree or any other congregation, please stand up. <coughs> yeah. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, you can sit down. You know, since last summer, I've gotten to know a, a, a number of Stephen leaders and Stephen ministers here at Green Tree, but a number of people have also come up to me and they have volunteered the fact that they have received care from a Stephen minister. And I, that is beautiful. And I'm not going to ask them to stand up because Stephen ministry is confidential. Now, Recently, our staff put together a video consisting of uh, a number of care receivers who have talked about their care. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to share that video with you. 
Let's pray. Father God, sometimes the pain we feel can seem unbearable. But then people step in and care for us in simple ways, and we can bear it after all. Thank you for raising up men and women to serve as Stephen leaders and Stephen ministers here at Green Tree and around the world. Thank you for giving them the heart of Jesus. And not only Stephen ministers, thank you for giving each and every one of us the call to care in our daily lives on an ongoing basis. Opportunities we have to reach out to those who are hurting and touch them with your love. In Jesus we live, and in Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, as I have gotten to know a number of you, it's, it's clear that you've accomplished quite a bit in your lives and in your work. But I've also discovered in just these short nine months that you've been no strangers to pain. Pain in the past and pain in the present. And I think we've all come to realize that life isn't perfect. So what do we do about this reality in our lives that life isn't perfect? I'd like to suggest three things. Number one is embrace your pain. Recognize it. Accept it. Don't deny it. I've seen over and over again that the more people try to deny their pain, the more it hurts. And I don't know where Christians ever got the idea that because of our faith that we should stifle our true feelings or that we should have only happy feelings. The real truth is that as we suffer, Jesus is with us. He doesn't say, you shouldn't feel that way. After all, you're a Christian. Instead, he says, I'm right here with you. I lost my wife, Joan, to ovarian cancer 12 years ago. And I remember in the first few months after Joan died, I didn't know whether I was coming or going. I was in a daze. And if someone would have come up to me with a greeting, what do you know? I don't know what I would have said, but inside I would have thought, the only thing I knew for sure is that Jesus loves me. Now, I knew that my family loved me very much, and the people I worked with at Stephen Ministries cared for me deeply. But if I would have had to share a rock-solid belief at that time, the only thing that I would have been able to share with real conviction is that Jesus loves me. And then, acknowledging that truth in my bones, I think I was much freer to experience my pain because I knew Jesus was right beside me. Jesus gave me permission to grieve. And that's true with any kind of pain we're feeling, not just grief due to the loss of a loved one. We are all free to embrace our pain because Jesus is right there with us. Several months after Joan died, I was uh, worshiping with some friends at a church other than the one I typically attended in St. Louis. And after the service, I was filing out the center aisle 
and I shook hands with a pastor who was also a friend of mine. And he asked me how I was doing, and I told him, crappy. He said, then be crappy. You know, that was actually a word of grace. I was feeling crappy, and it was all right to feel that way. Jesus' faithfulness allowed me to feel what I felt, and I didn't have to fake it for anyone, certainly not for Jesus. Now, you may think that this is pretty earthy. Well, exactly. That's the kind of God we have, God who sent his son to earth. And I'm not sure you can get any more earthy than being born in a stable. And the way I figure it, if Jesus can be earthy, we can be earthy. And you know, when earthlings feel pain of any kind, we often cry. Perhaps you've heard the expression, what so-and-so needs is a good cry. Or just go ahead and cry, you'll feel better. And these are very wise words. Crying usually does make us feel better. A couple of years ago, I was talking with a woman who had recently attended a weekend retreat for grieving people. And during the weekend, she called a friend who asked her how the retreat was going. And she told her friend, I'm having a great time. I've been crying all weekend. Now, People differ in their ability to cry, and this is affected, affected by culture and upbringing and expectations. Also, women tend to cry more than men, and I think that this is men's loss. And I, just, I will have to say that I'm personally a little bit challenged in this area. And as I see it, I've got three strikes against me. I'm male, I'm German, and I was born and raised Lutheran. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, maybe some of you know what I'm talking about. Now, by saying embrace your pain, I'm not suggesting that we should wallow in it or whine. Recognizing our pain and expressing it is completely different from whining. And as a matter of fact, our Christian faith gives us the security to recognize and even to express our hurts and our pains and our fears. Embracing pain is very Christian, and it is very human. Number two is care for others. I'd like to tell you about one of my early caregiving experiences when I was a brand new pastor. And there was a woman in our congregation who was in her late 60s named Edna. And she was a dignified lady, a strong woman, and a very caring individual. She had never married, and she ran a hairdressing business out of her home. Edna and I worked together on a number of ministry teams, and she was also a good friend and a caregiver to me as well. One day, Edna called me on the phone, and she told me about a niece who was having a great deal of difficulty in her life. She talked, and I listened. And at the end of our conversation, she asked me if there were a Bible passage that I could share with her that would apply to her in this situation. And right about that time, I had been doing some work in the area of crisis theory and intervention, and I'd been working with a passage that I thought would really fit her to a T. Paul is writing to the Corinthians. For even if that letter of mine made you sad, I am not sorry I wrote it. I could have been sorry about it when I saw that the letter made you sad for a while. 
But now I am happy, not because I made you sad, but because your sadness made you change your ways. That sadness was used by God, and so we caused you no harm. And I shared the chapter and verse with her, thinking particularly about how sadness can be used by God to help us grow. Then we both needed to get going because she had an appointment, and so did I. Well, later that afternoon, Edna called me, and she said, you know, I looked up the passage you gave me and read it over uh, several times, but do you think it really applies to me? And I told her, most definitely. And after she hung up the phone, I wondered why Edna would uh, ask me about that. This was a very astute woman who knew her Bible quite well. Then I thought I would recheck the passage, and I made a discovery. I was thinking about 2 Corinthians 7, 8, and 9, which I read to you, but I referred her to 1 Corinthians 7, 8, and 9, which goes like this. Now I say this to the unmarried and to the widows. It would be better for you to continue to live alone as I do. But if you cannot restrain your desires, go on and marry. It is better to marry than to burn with passion. <laughs> Needless to say, I got back to Edna very quickly. And perhaps the moral of this story is, get your Corinthians right. Now, I've told this story before, sometimes at leaders' training courses, and people sometimes ask me whether I made it up. And I tell them, no, I couldn't make up something that good. <laughs> you know, um, there's a great scene in the musical version of Les Miserables when Fantine is in a hospital near death. She's delirious, and she call, is calling out to her daughter, Cosette. Jean Valjean enters the room and kneels by her bed. Fantine is worried about her daughter's future, and Valjean says that Cosette will live in his protection and will want for nothing. Fantine then makes a profound statement. She says, Good monsieur, you come from God in heaven. Fantine spoke the truth, and not just allegorically, but literally. In the person of Valjean, Jesus was actually there, and not just in some figurative way, but in a very real way. It was not as if Jesus were present there in the hospital room. Jesus was physically present there in the person of Valjean. That's incarnational theology, and it's one of the foundations of Christianity. When we are caring for others, it is not just we who are caring. It's Jesus Christ enfleshed, caring through us and in us. You ever heard your, that you should live your life as if God or Jesus is watching you? I'd like to suggest uh, that you live your life like Jesus is in you. Be Christ to all those you touch. And it might be even a good idea to wake up in the morning and pray, let me be Jesus to everyone I interact with today. 
Another thing, and this is really neat, something possibly unexpected happens when we care for others, when we are Jesus to others. Not only do the people we are caring for benefit, but we benefit as well. When we are Jesus to others, we change, we grow, we feel right with the world. We feel right with God. And this applies to all of us, and Stephen ministers are well. It's kind of neat. A number of times, many times, people have come out to me, and they've been Stephen ministers, and they've said to me, you know, Ken, i gotta, I got to ask you this question, I, I, and I kind of feel bad about this, but uh, I get more out of this than my care receivers get out of this. And I tell people that that is something that Stephen ministers say all the time. And sometimes people say, I'm getting 10 times more out of this than my care receiver. And I think that's kind of an, uh, an example of God's economy at work. Number three is embrace joy. One of my favorite books of the Bible is the book of Ecclesiastes. And this book was written by an older, older person who was reflecting back on his life. And as he does this, he also looks at the lives of other people. And what he sees is that people, himself included, are feverishly searching for meaning in life. And earlier in his life, the author had tried to find meaning in such things as wisdom, wealth, power, pleasure, work, sex. But he continually came up with nothing. None of these things ended up being very meaningful. And it was only later in life that he found what he was looking for. And there are a lot of good insights in Ecclesiastes, but what I want to focus on briefly is what this book says specifically about joy and the enjoyment of life. Now, some scholars say that Ecclesiastes is a pessimist because he says things like this. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? And also, so I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Well, that's the pessimist side. Other scholars take a different view and say that the author is an optimist because he says things like this. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his or her own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? <clears throat> or... He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and do good while they live. Or, so I commend the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for people under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. <clears throat> so, is the author of Ecclesiastes an optimist or a pessimist? Well, one thing that could be said <clears throat> is that he's a realist. He doesn't say that if you believe in God, all your problems will go away. He doesn't sugarcoat life. 
And to me, that gives him a lot of credibility, especially when he writes about joy. And through most of the 12 chapters of the book, the author of Ecclesiastes struggles. Then toward the end of the book, he pulls it all together with a twofold emphasis. Rejoicing and remembering. And with regard to rejoicing, he says this. Light is sweet, and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. However many years people may live, let them enjoy them all. And to that I'd say, thumbs up, right on, by all means. Let's enjoy life. But then, in the very next verse, he says this. But let people remember the days of darkness, for there, for there will be many. Now, is he contradicting himself? I don't think so. You know, there's a lot of wisdom in remembering days of darkness in addition to remembering days of light. The writer of Ecclesiastes is reminding us that life isn't perfect. And I think if we remember to expect the dark days, we won't be blindsided when they happen. And we'll be freer to enjoy the days of light. And to me, this remembering thing gives the author a lot of credibility. And if he had taken us through all his struggles and joys throughout the book, and then he had mentioned only rejoicing at the end of the book, I might have wondered, yeah, but what about all those struggles you were talking about? But the author's approach to life is not just being blindly cheerful. He's looking at life with all honesty, talking about the bad times as well as the good times. So it's clear he's not a phony. But he just doesn't stop at remembering the dark days. That's only one part of remembering. In the last chapter of Ecclesiastes, he says what I consider to be the capstone of the book. Remember your creator. Throughout most of the book, the author tries to find meaning on his own. And he's not too successful. But when he says, remember your creator, he stops focusing on himself and instead focuses on his relationship with God. He's getting back to the basics. He's dropping any pretense of being self-sufficient. And he's now committing himself fully to God. He's learned that he can't lead a meaningful life without God. And that paves the way for the unleashing of joy. There's a passage in the Talmud, an ancient Jewish writing that goes like this. Everyone must give an account before God of all good things one saw in life and did not enjoy. And so for the writer of Ecclesiastes, enjoying life is not only permissible, it's a divine imperative. It's like God saying to us, thou shalt enjoy the good things in life. And you know, the basic theme of Ecclesiastes is that without God, life is meaningless, empty, futile, and without purpose. But we do have God. So I'd say, let's seize the day. In fact, let's seize many days and enjoy life to the fullest. You know, earlier I raised the question, 
is the writer of Ecclesiastes an optimist or a pessimist? And I said that one good answer is that he's a realist. In the end, though, I think he's an optimist at heart. He's realistic about life, but because of God, we can truly embrace joy. Now, in the bulletin for today, you can see that the title for this message is Pain, Care, Joy. And although that was the title I ended up with, there were at least three other titles I considered. One title was, Where Do We Go From Here? That might be clever, but all of us are unique and are on different paths, so there isn't a one-size-fits-all answer. Another idea was, how do we go from here? But again, there, there isn't a single best answer to that question for all of us. But on a deeper level, we all can ask, with whom do we go from here? And the best answer is that we go with Jesus, who shares our pain, who is in us as we care, and who celebrates with us in our joy. We can't do any better than that. Let's pray. Jesus, we go with you gladly, walking in the light. We remember you saying, I am the light of the world, but we also remember the writer of Ecclesiastes who urges us to remember the days of darkness, because there are days like that too. Pain, care, joy. Life makes jugglers of us all, and it's hard to juggle in the dark. We thank God that you are there for us at those dark times, Jesus, lighting our way. And we are overjoyed that you are with us in the, light, in the times of light, too. Amen. Please stand with us as we respond.